Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. explore uh, some of the teachings of Kabbalah, and specifically on the theme of uh, how God is reimagined by the Jewish mystics. So you have um, on the front, uh, this is a picture of God. So, you know, of course, in a Jewish context, that's an impossible statement to make. How can you depict God? You might say that the reality of God is the white space here the white space behind all these spheres or, or, or circles. And the name for that ultimate reality of God is in Hebrew, Ein Sof. You could spell that E-I-N, N, meaning there is not. Sof, an end. So there is no end or, or the infinite. So ultimately, God is infinity, according to the Jewish mystics. Even the biblical names of God, Adonai, Elohim, all those names we hear, Shaddai. According to the Kabbalah, those might refer to one or another of these spheres, these circles, but they don't really do justice to the full reality of God. So the only thing we can, we can correctly apply to God is this name, Ein Sof, the infinite. So what are these sifirot? What are these circles? I'm sure a number of you have seen this before or heard a little bit about this. These are, you might say, qualities of God, aspects of God's personality. So here God is both masculine and feminine. And that, I would say, is one of the radical innovations of the Kabbalah, to say that God is not just father or patriarch, right, warrior, king, judge. All those descriptions of God that we find in the Bible, those really support just the patriarchal masculine divinity. And Kabbalah says God is equally male and female. So the male and female in this chart, you would find uh, the, the top right, the, sorry, the top left is Bina, the mother, and the top right, Chochmah, wisdom, father. So according to the Kabbalah, that is father and mother within God. Now this sounds strange in a Jewish context to speak about two aspects or multiple aspects of God. After all, the main contribution of Judaism was supposed to be monotheism. So how can we say God is ten, or God is multiple, or God is male and female? What the Kabbalah would say is that ultimately God is one, but because our minds are limited, because we're limited, puny, human creatures, we can't comprehend this infinity of God. We can only find this aspect or that aspect, at least one at a time, you might say. And that's what these Sifirot are. But since we don't have much time uh, before the next the public session, I wanted to focus on the last of these 10 
Sifi wrote here, what's called here Malchut. Her other name is Shekhinah. Okay, Shekhinah is the name for the feminine aspect of God. In fact, the, the union of the masculine and the feminine is the goal of this whole system here. Where is the masculine? I mentioned father and mother near the top, but in terms of Shekhinah, if the last of the ten spherot is Malchut or Shekhinah, her partner is the middle spherot, Tiferet. Tiferet is the, the masculine divinity, and Shekhinah is the feminine, and they are meant to unite. According to Kabbalah, the goal of Judaism, the goal of life, the goal of all the commandments, is to unify the masculine and the feminine. Again, that sounds strange. How can you speak of a sexuality within God? But the Kabbalah, for the Kabbalah, sexuality is something very holy. It's not that sex is not religious, okay, which you find in some religious systems, right? Some ascetic forms of Christianity or celibacy, right? How do you become holy if you're a Christian man or a woman? You devote yourself to God and you abandon normal marriage. In Judaism, it's the opposite. Through marriage, through finding a, a sexual partner, you actually can imitate the divine romance. There's a divine romance, and human romance imitates that divine romance. But more interesting than that, not only does it imitate the divine romance, it stimulates the divine romance. In other words, God cannot unite. The male and female within God cannot unite unless human beings are engaged in holy action. One of those holy acts is sexual union. So human sexual union stimulates divine union. But really, not just sex, any holy action that we do stimulates the divine couple to unite. It's almost, it's almost just a, a mythological explanation of why it's important to do the mitzvot, why it's important to be good. If you're good, you have an effect on God. And that's a strange claim that the Kabbalah makes, that God needs us. God is affected by, by what we do and how we act. So I would say those are the three main innovations of the Kabbalah. One, that God is infinite, ultimately undescribable, ultimately beyond anything we can comprehend. But if we're going to describe God, we have to balance the normal, traditional, patriarchal description with the feminine, with Shekhinah. And the third, that for that divine union to happen, for the divine couple to unite, we have to be uh, actualizing the divine potential. If we act ethically, if we act spiritually, if we cultivate an ethical and spiritual lifestyle, then we are doing God's work. More than that, we are actualizing God. You might say God is the potential to be holy. God is potential holiness. How does that potential turn into realized holiness? Only by human action. God can't do it on his own, on her own. So I just want to look at a couple passages with you about Shekhinah, and that takes us uh, to the second sheet. Shekhinah, the feminine half of God. So even though she's one of those ten sefirot, the real drama in the Zohar is the romance between Shekhinah and that middle sefirah. One of, that, one of the names for that middle sefirah, Tiferet was on the chart, but one of its names is, is the Holy One, Blessed Be He. That's a very typical rabbinic name for God. 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He. That's the masculine, because it says He. How do you know that, how do you know that Shekhinah is the feminine? Because it starts with what? She. Okay, sometimes English works better than Hebrew. Sometimes you miss things in Hebrew that you pick up in English. So Shekhinah is the she, the Holy One, blessed be he, is the he, and their romance is the, is the purpose of life. Okay, what's going on here with Shekhinah? Number one. Now I should tell you, the first four here, there are five quotes on the page. The first four are from rabbinic texts. In other words, before we get to the mystics, before we get to the Kabbalah. Kabbalah basically emerges in medieval Europe, 12th, 13th centuries. The Talmud is 500, 1,000 years older, right? And written in the land of Israel and in, in Iraq and Babylon. So the first four are from earlier Jewish teachings. You could say typical rabbinic teachings, the Talmud and the Midrash. Five is going to take us into the world of the Zohar. Okay, number one. And uh, surely we should end in about how many minutes? And that, now it's 20 minutes. 20 minutes, perfect. Okay, 20 minutes, we have five passages, so we'll give each one one minute, and we'll leave most of it for the Zohar. Number one, there is no place empty of Shekhinah. That's a, that really defines what Shekhinah means before we get to the Kabbalah. Okay, we're talking now, leave aside Zohar, mysticism, the divine romance. We're talking about standard rabbinic Judaism. That's where the first four teachings come from. First one says what? Shekhinah is basically what we would call omnipresence. God's being present everywhere. There's no place on earth that's lacking the divine presence. So what does Shekhinah mean? What's the root Shachan? Shachan means to dwell. So Shekhinah means dwelling, God's dwelling in the world, God's presence in the world. Number two, wherever Israel went in exile, Shekhinah was with them. So this adds something. It's not just that Shekhinah is God's presence in the world. Shekhinah is God's intimacy with the Jewish people. Don't think that God has abandoned you. Shekhinah is with you. You might think some aspect of God is, is beyond, is transcendent. Shekhinah is the aspect of God that's right here and that's always uh, connected with the people, with the people of Israel. Three, happy are the righteous for they cause Shekhinah to dwell on earth. The Hebrew has mashkinim Shekhinah. So mashkin means to cause something to dwell, and Shekhinah is the divine presence. So this is interesting. This, this is defining what it means to be righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? To make room for God in the world, to make God, to invite God into the world, you might say. Now that's strange because we just said Shekhinah is in the world. Shekhinah is God's presence in the world. So why do you have to do anything to make God come into the world? Shekhinah is already there. I think this is really a matter partly of awareness, to be aware of the divine potential, and also, again, that your actions have an effect. You might say God is potentially in the world. God is potentially here. But unless people act in ethical ways, then God is really being disregarded or almost, uh, you know, eliminated. We have the power to make God real or to ignore the divine entirely. So to be righteous is to make God real. In fact, there's a beautiful name for Shekhinah in the Kabbalah, 
the secret of the possible. The Hebrew is Sod HaEfshar, the secret of the possible. That's a name for God in the Kabbalah, which really means God is possibly here, but that possibility can't turn into, re into a reality unless we work on our ethical qualities, unless we act like a mensch. Right? What does religion really come down to? Like my Uber driver today said, you know, belief doesn't really matter that much. What matters is how you act. And really, that, that's very much the point here, too. Action makes all the difference, awareness and action. Okay, the last one before we come to the, the Zohar, the Kabbalah. Number four, when Rav Yosef heard his mother's footsteps, he would say, I will arise before Shekhinah, who is approaching. So this one rabbi, whenever he heard his mother come into the room, he'd say, I have to get up because the Shekhinah is coming into the room. So for him, his mother was an embodiment of Shekhinah. This is interesting because it shows you, for that rabbi at least, the feminine nature of Shekhinah was paramount, was really you know, obvious. His mother was an embodiment of the feminine divine principle. Okay, so we're at number five. I said this is from the Zohar. Some of you may wonder, what's the difference between Zohar and Kabbalah? There's no book called the Kabbalah. Okay, Kabbalah is the name for the whole philosophy of Jewish mysticism. The Zohar is the major book of the Kabbalah. So this is a passage from the Zohar, and the Zohar is a mystical commentary on the Torah. And here the Zohar is commenting on a verse in Genesis he drove out et ha-adam. Okay, he drove out Adam, or he drove out the human. Okay, obviously this is from the Garden of Eden story, right? Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and they're expelled from the garden. So the verse says, he drove out the, the human. Now, look at the Hebrew for a minute. If you know just a little Hebrew, look at that at the three Hebrew words on the right where it says number five. The first is Vayigaresh, which means he drove out. The second is Et, a little Hebrew word that means nothing. And the next word is Ha'adam, the human. So he drove out the human. But the Hebrew has this weird word, Et. What is that word? Look at it closely. The English is E-T. You could say this is the, the Jewish E-T. But the Hebrew is what? The Hebrew is, what are the two letters? Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet, Taf. So here we have a little word, has only two letters, the first letter of the alphabet, the last letter of the alphabet, and it means nothing. Now how can I say it means nothing? In Hebrew, you can't say, I drink the water. You have to say, I drink at the water. You can't say, I see this, the light. You have to say, I see at the light. So it's a marker for the direct object. It's just a feature of Hebrew. When you translate, you just skip over it. It means nothing, but it has to be there indicating the direct object. If you don't have, if you don't have the definite article, the, you don't need it. I drink water, anishoteh mayim. But I drink the water, anishoteh et ha mayim, the water. So it's very strange. You can imagine how many times it comes, thousands of times in the Bible. Every time you have a direct object, with a definite article, you need et. The very first verse of the Bible has it twice. In the beginning, God created et, the heaven, 
and edge the Earth. So generally, you can ignore it. But what's strange is it, it covers the whole alphabet, right? It's A to Z. It's Aleph to Tuf, so it includes everything, but it means nothing. This is too good for a rabbi to pass up. <laughs> so rabbis loved to interpret the word et. Even though it doesn't mean anything, if it's there, it must be doing something. So it's really it's an opportunity to expand, to stretch the meaning of a verse. There's one rabbi in the Talmud who especially loved to interpret et, and that was, I'm sure a name many of you know, Rabbi Akiva. Right? One of the most famous rabbis of the entire Mishnah, the entire early phase of rabbinic Judaism. Some people call him the founder of rabbinic Judaism, one of the founders of rabbinic Judaism. And he said, wherever you find that word et, you can, you can add something to the verse. For example, it says in Deuteronomy, et ha-Elohim tira'un, you should revere God. But the Hebrew says you should revere et God. So Rabbi Akiva said that means you should also revere your rabbi. <laughs> In other words, it's an opportunity to expand the meaning of the verse. Some of Akiva's colleagues got tired of him doing all this extra interpretation. They said, Dayecha, enough with you. What do we say on Passover? Dayenu, enough for us. If you did this, if you did this, it would have been enough. They said, enough with you. Enough with you and your ets. Because you can imagine you could drive someone crazy trying to interpret every it. So he interpreted it. The Zohar also loves to interpret it. But in the Zohar, it becomes a name for Shekhinah. It's a code name for the Shekhinah. Why? Because she is A to Z. She is Aleph to Taf. She includes all of the divine qualities. Remember on this chart, she's the last of the ten Sifirot. She includes all the previous ones. So she is Et. She is Aleph to Taf. Hey, the only other thing we need to know before we read this short paragraph is the verb to drive out, legaresh, can also mean in the Bible to divorce. And sometimes this verse is interpreted that way. There's a midrash that says, what does it mean God expelled Adam? It really means he divorced Adam. It's as if God and Adam were married. They were so close, they were so intimate, it's as if they were a married couple. But because Adam disobeyed the divine command, God divorced him. Okay, let's see what the Zohar says. He drove out et ha'adam. Rabbi Elazar said, We do not know who divorced whom, if the blessed Holy One divorced Adam, or... So he's saying, we don't know who divorced whom. Did God divorce Adam, or what's the alternative? Louder. Adam divorced God. The Zohar is not going to say anything so shocking. What does the Zohar say? Or not. You see here the beauty of the Zohar. What's it doing? It makes you come up with a radical alternative. The radical, almost heretical alternative. Who kicked who out of the garden? Did God kick Adam out? Or, and your mind can't help but thinking, did Adam kick God out? The Zohar just says very innocently, or not. But it's planting a seed in our mind. It's making us come up with a radical interpretation. That's the beauty of the Zohar. The Zohar never hands you something on a platter, or rarely. It just, it just, it just uh, entices you to see a new possibility of meaning. So we don't know who divorced whom. The Blessed Holy One here means simply God. Did God divorce Adam or not? But the word is transposed. That means the whole verse is turned, <laughs> is turned on its head. He drove out Et. Now, I told you, Et is a code name for who? 
Shekhinah. The Zohar doesn't tell us that here. <coughs> Fifty pages later, the Zohar might say that. But here it just assumes we know that. So what does it mean? He drove out the Shekhinah. <clears throat> now Ed is not just a blank, meaningless word. It's actually a name for the Shekhinah. So the verse now means he drove out the Shekhinah. Who drove out Ed? Adam. Look while he's reading the verse. The verse says what? He drove out Et Adam. He's putting the period after Et. He drove out Et. He drove out the Shekhinah. Who drove out the Shekhinah? Now we read the next word, Adam. So the whole verse is turned on its head. It's not that God drove out Adam. It's that Adam drove out the Shekhinah. And it's as if he can prove it because he's turned the verse totally upside down. Okay, obviously, he knows this is not the meaning of the verse. It's not the literal, simple meaning. The literal meaning is God expelled Adam. The mystical meaning is Adam expelled God. So he's reinterpreting the verse radically. Now look what he says. Adam actually drove out Et. Okay, notice how he's avoiding using the name Shekhinah. He doesn't use it once, but that's what he means. That's the Zohar style. It doesn't tell you what, what he means. He's hinting, he's alluding, and 50 pages later, he'll fill in the, the mystery. Consequently, it's written, Yudhevavi Elohim expelled him from the Garden of Eden. Okay, the Zohar does not deny that God expelled Adam, but he asks, why did he expel him? Because Adam drove out Et, as we have explained. I love that, as we have explained. First of all, he didn't explain it, right? He just hinted at it. Second of all, when did he say it at all? two lines earlier, but now all of a sudden it's become tradition. This is what I would call instant tradition. Okay, the Zohar likes to invent new traditions and then present them as old. Okay, so this sounds intriguing, this sounds interesting, but what, what does this mean that Adam <coughs> divorced the Shekhinah? Maybe it means he should have meditated on the union of that divine couple, right? The Holy One, blessed be he, and Shekhinah. Instead of marrying the two partners, he split them. He split them apart. Or maybe it means he lost his own connection with God. What's, what's happening in the Garden of Eden? They're really in a, in a realm of bliss, right? They're surrounded by the divine presence. Then something happens, and Adam and Eve find themselves excluded from that realm of bliss. Now, what happens? What really happens in the Garden? Right? It's a story that's been told and retold so many times. It's probably one of the most prominent stories in all of Western culture. But what does it mean? What actually happens to Adam and Eve after they eat from the fruit? The Bible just says they were embarrassed. They realized that they were naked. So it must mean they have a certain amount of self-consciousness. It could be sexual awareness, but it more basically, it's they become aware that they are separate individuals. You might say they discover their ego. That's really what happens in the garden. Adam and Eve become aware that they are individuals. So what was their state of mind before that? They were really just part of the oneness of it all. Now that sounds mystical, that sounds very ethereal, but think back, think back in your own life to when you were uh, three years old. Who can remember that? We can't, why? Because we weren't really a full self. Right? I mean, psychologists debate at what point the baby becomes aware of being a self. It's probably between half a year and a year and a half so what's going on in the baby's mind before that, when he or she is still in the Garden of Eden, you might say? 
the baby doesn't realize that it's separate from the mother or from the world, right? That's why it's so dangerous to leave a baby alone. The baby doesn't know where it ends and the stove begins. Right? It doesn't distinguish itself from the world. At a certain point, each of us lived in that consciousness of, of unity, of, of oneness, and then naturally, it's not a sin or a fall, naturally we become aware of being a separate self. If we don't, we don't make it very long in life. If we don't realize we're separate, we're going to get run over by something. So we have to know that we're separate. But what mysticism says is that there's a great price we've paid for that ego consciousness. There's something more primal. There's something more ancient that we still have a vague memory of. And that is being part of the oneness of it all. That may sound very new agey, but actually Einstein says that. Einstein says, Einstein wrote a letter to a rabbi in which he said, the greatest illusion, he calls it an optical delusion, not even an illusion. It's an optical delusion to think that we're separate from the universe. We're really part of the universe, and we think that we're separate from it. And he says the main task of religion is to remind people that they're part of the universe. So you might say a baby has that, and a mystic has that, and the rest of us are kind of stuck in between. We have a sense of self, but there's something greater that, that beckons us. And that, I think, is what the Zohar is alluding to here, that we are Adam and Eve. We originally had this oneness, and we've lost it. But is there a way in which we can reconnect, not necessarily become one with the cosmos, just to reconnect with something greater than ourselves? So let me stop there and leave uh, at least 30 seconds for uh, a, 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 couple, a few minutes. Wonderful. Five minutes for some questions or, or thoughts. Please. Well, what prompted, you said, as, as uh, babies, children, we naturally move to from the, from, from the oneness to a separate identity. You could ask, what prompted that in the Garden of Eden? And I would answer, they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. So they were introduced to duality. Or duality. To duality, right. It may mean specifically good and evil, or that may be just an example of making distinctions. So they learned to make distinctions. And the most basic distinction is what? Me and you, me and the world. And then all the other distinctions come, come from that. We can't live without those distinctions, right? It would be nice to live in a world of oneness, of bliss, but you won't make it very far, right? Or you won't be there at 3.30 to pick up your kid. Or you won't be responsive to another person. You'll think it's only me. It's me. It's me. I'm the world, right? We all know stories of people who are so intoxicated with God, they think God is telling them to murder or to you know, do something unethical. So you can't trust necessarily that sensation of, you know, I am the universe. But there's a beautiful sense of I am the universe that's there with an infant, that's there with Adam and Eve, and I think we can, we can tap into that occasionally. We can't live in it full time. We, I, don't think, I don't think we can live in oneness for more than a brief time. But if we don't have at least a taste of that oneness, then we really feel stranded and isolated and alienated. Yeah? But that's what one of our mitzvot say, that we should cleave to God. We should attempt, at least, 
Yeah. They have some sense of awareness at all. Yeah, Rabbi Shmuley and I were talking about this uh, over lunch, that it's amazing. The Torah says you should unite with God. You don't usually think of that as one of the mitzvot, right? We were, we were talking at lunch, what makes a Jew religious? How do you define whether a, a Jew is observant or not observant? It often comes down to two basic mitzvot. Guess. Shabbat. Shabbat, kashrut, right? If, if you keep Shabbos and you keep kosher, you can get away with almost anything. And in your circle, you may still be regarded as a religious Jew. But one of the mitzvot is cleave to God, attach yourself to God. So for that to be a basic religious commandment is very, very radical. Rabbi. So we normally think of, of liberation theology as emerging from a Latin American Roman Catholic civil 70s. But there's obviously huge similarities in the Zohar with the God who suffers, with the Shekhinah that's mm. in exile. And I wonder, like, how does some of that theology in the Zohar differ from what we call liberation theology today? Yeah, I guess what, I think what's most shared between Kabbalah and liberation theology is that God needs us. Right? We're partners with God. We can't just wait for it to happen. We have to change society. We have to mend the world. The world is broken. So tikkun, right, tikkun, tikkun olam, which literally is mending the world, that God leaves to us. So, you know, it's, it's up to us to, to, improve, to improve things. The social action is, you know, is, is basic to, to Kabbalah. There were a few other hands I thought uh, raised. Did you have a thought or a question? Yeah. Please. Uh, I, I was thinking that uh, one, perhaps one way to interpret this uh, kicking out business is that for some reason um, Adam and Eve had a falling out of some sort. Had a, a doubt? Uh, a, a falling out of... Uh-huh. Um, a falling out with each other or with God? No, between them. With each other, uh-huh. And, and uh-huh. And said, thanks for the gift of Eve, but no thanks, I want to give her back to you. Wait, I don't know, so you're saying Adam and Eve had a falling out with each other. Yeah. And because of that... Adam wanted to give Eve back to Hashem? I've never heard that reading of, of Genesis, but it's, it's interesting. I mean, the Zohar certainly goes far beyond the literal meaning, so. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You know, the, you do have speculation about another Eve, right? A first Eve, Lilith, right? You've probably heard of that. Lilith, who refused to be subservient to Adam, didn't want to lie beneath him, insisted on, on her equal rights, and she flew off because she couldn't convince Adam to be liberated. Uh, and then you have Eve coming kind of as a second, as a second Eve, first Eve and second Eve. Yeah. Part, part of my thought, so I don't sound too crazy, is that the, um, the baby uh, really um, gives up the belief that the mother is part of the baby from uh, utter frustration having milk and breast when the baby wants it. And it doesn't come always when the baby wants it, so the baby needs to develop the sense that there is other, that there is mm. other um, mother and the rest of the world. 
Right. I mean, according to according to Midrash, Adam and Eve were originally one one androgynous being, male and female. It's not that Adam. It's not that God took a rib of Adam. God actually took one half of Adam. Adam was male and female, and then they finally became. Then they could face each other. Then they could relate to the other. Good. Any any more questions or thoughts? So picking up on that last point, a lot of folks with a more fluid sense of their gender, trans folks and the like, have felt more at home with Kabbalah. And I wonder if you could speak towards sort of why Jewish wisdom that can help them feel more at home. With mm-hmm. Yeah, is Kabbalah uh, open or appreciative of other gender possibilities or gender fluidity? It's strange. You know, I would say the Zohar itself is certainly not pro-gay. You know, the Zohar would, would see homosexuality as a sin. And yet, in the symbolism of the Sfirot, you do have a certain amount of uh, gender fluidity, even. God is male and female. Some of the feminine aspects, you know, also manifest as masculine. Shekhinah is the feminine, but she's seen as the king of the world. Um, you do have a lot of male bonding, Certainly that is there already in the Talmud and, and also in, in the Kabbalah. So I would say, I, what I really, really say is that Kabbalah needs to be updated. Kabbalah really needs to be criticized. I think there are great treasures here, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't uh, recommend that people convert to Kabbalah or become full-time Kabbalists, rather to you know, be enriched by some of the, of the new interpretations and, and the radical Midrash. Last thought, please. Abraham caused Sarah when he hands her off to, to Pharaoh. Yeah, yeah. No, that's why Lilith, even though she becomes a demonic figure, she's really been, you know, welcomed openly by Jewish feminists, and she's seen as someone, you know, as a model for standing up to, to male dominance. Okay, let's thank Professor. Good. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.